Hey all, welcome back to the Riffle podcast, your fortnightly guide to the 2021 Riffle anthology. I'm Maya, a postgraduate publishing student and part of the Riffle marketing team. Here as always with Raven. Hello. A fellow master's student at Kingston and assistant managing editor of the anthology. On this podcast, we will be interviewing members of the Ripple team, published authors, and professionals from the book trade, getting writing tips, book recommendations, and insider info on the publishing process. As we announced on social media recently, the submission deadline has been extended. You now have until the 16th of December to get your submissions in to us. So if you haven't had time to get creative during assignment season, now is your chance. For full guidelines on how to submit your work, please visit kingstonripple.wordpress.com slash submit or check out episode zero of our podcast where May and I talk through all the specific criteria for submitting. And if you listen to this episode the day it comes out on the 13th of December 2020, Maya is currently answering questions on the Ripple Instagram account. Today we're joined by Fiona to discuss the editorial side of Riffle. Hi Fiona, how are you doing today? I'm good, thank you. How are you? Yeah, I'm well. I love talking like this as if we haven't just been speaking about dogs for an hour. Yeah, literally. <laughs> so uh, to start us off, do you mind telling us a little bit about yourself, uh, your journey to Kingston and your role at Riffle? Sure. Um, so I'm a publishing student at Kingston and I'm part of the editing team for Ripple. Uh, Previous years they have made style sheets for their individual issues but we were hoping to make one as a cohesive sheet that they might be able to go off of next year and in years going forward. Uh, What would you say was something like interesting about those sessions that we had discussing the intricacies of the things to put in the style sheet? Um, So First of all, I know for a fact that we're going to disagree on the Oxford comma thing. I've heard that you like it, Raven. I am for it, but I, I'm okay. I can concede because I recognise that I'm in the minority. Fine, because I passionately would say that it's wrong. I am <laughs> in that minority, Raven. Are okay. you joking me? This is why we're podcast co-hosts. So you like the awkward comma. So let's let's break it down just for a second. So there's a list of things. You're going shopping. It's like, I'm going to get some eggs, some flour, some protein. I don't know. um, And (laughs) some protein. I don't I've never been to the gym. I don't know. My favorite things are protein and protein. So I would say. (laughs) <laughs> I would say also and the and acts as the break. So what you're doing is go consider through. eats, shoots, and leaves. You know, shoots. Yes, eats, shoots, comma, comma and leaves. That is a different sentence from eats, shoots, and leaves. It's like a very common. There's like literally a book. It's a book title. I know, and it's a common it. grammatical thing about the Oxford comma. Oh my god! Yeah, you might have just won. Yeah, <laughs> leaves is a different sentence from eats, shoots, and leaves. One of those things is illegal, and the other is a panda. Oh my god! I'm actually really upset that you've just won this. We're changing so hearts and minds on this podcast. Whole thing. <laughs> it's a success. Wow. 
my can I, I'm still going to say it. My thing is, it just feels like too long a break. And in a sentence like that, where it's a shopping list, where the the facts are still the same, I think it would be wrong to put it in. Like if you were writing a shopping list, would you put the comma after the first protein? <laughs> Why am I writing a shopping list as a proper sentence in the first place? What kind of psychopath story, am I? <laughs> if you're in a store, if you're like, if I'm sat there editing a piece of work and I'm going by the style sheet and they list their shopping and they've got the Oxford comma, I'm getting annoyed. I can see that. I think like, yeah, if it doesn't change the meaning, I can understand not wanting it there. But there are situations where it does change the meaning to say like, you have the first item and then it implies that the second two items are inherently linked Mm -hmm. when they are not. They are just consecutive things on a list. So you do have to be careful about like changing the literal grammatical meaning of the sentence sometimes. Okay, you've, you've, you've convinced me on that one. Yeah. Yeah, that's yeah. That it is sometimes useful. That's the thing that's always sort of pushed me to the side of pro Oxford comma is that in a list of three, you don't want two and three to be separate from one. You want them all to be their own separate entities, if that makes sense. But it does that, depend. On the yeah, yeah, that, that's interesting. I think that there, the comma can be very fun, but I don't know if anyone will agree. Do you know what I mean? Anyone who doesn't like editing will find that fun. I don't know. <laughs> This podcast is for a very niche market (laughs) of people who already know most of us. Yes. Um, And Raven's grandmother. Hi, Grandma. (laughs) (laughs) Just Raven's grand. Right. What else did I have to say? I mean, most of this is just um, changing it. So it's a British um, style sheet. So you would have added in, you'd have S. color with with a u of course the correct way what i like about the canadian spelling methodologies is that a lot of the time we have the british spellings that i prefer like color with a u but then we also take the american spellings of certain things and in general it's more flexible so if someone is using like american spellings it's not counted as being incorrect Mm. so we have like a more flexible you can use what feels right to you a lot of the time for me I I hate unnecessary zeds unless I'm playing scrabble because it's like there's just no point yeah I get yeah when I've written like academic essays and like you're on word I find it interesting that you know they just they never mention it they never go oh that's American spelling as long as it's consistent but which I get but at the same time, it's kind of like, why does my computer constantly correct me and make me American? It's just like really irritating. Yeah, I always find that really annoying for like my thing. Though I think I had my settings on Word set to English Canada. Like I do think that's an option. Oh in which case, if you set it to like English UK, which I think is also a, an option, it shouldn't correct you on those things then. Or like, for example, things like quotation marks, it would count... In mine, it always says single quotation marks are grammatically incorrect because in Canadian conventions, we use double quotation marks for dialogue. So it would see that as incorrect on my thing. But I, it is correct in British. I would say that you, for dialogue, you do double yeah. in English, no? In British English, the convention is single, uh, single quotation marks. Well, I'm going to have to write to someone. 
Yeah, that one's weird. I prefer double quotations for dialogue and then single quotations for anything else that you need it for. But is that just years of reading American fiction? It might be. It could be. So I did all my education in French. So I read a lot of French books growing up. Uh, The thing that messes me up is the way French dialogue tags are is impossible to read. So French dialogue tags, you put one at the beginning and one at the end. And if there's any thoughts or non-dialogue bits in the middle, you do not indicate with dialogue tags that they like it. It is so hard to read sometimes. And sometimes they only indicate dialogue by putting like a hyphen at the beginning of a line. And so it's like a hyphen and then they just write it. And then it's just like it is not clear where the dialogue ends. You just have to figure it out. That is wild it's so unnecessarily difficult that's why I never got into reading French fiction or like even like I could read French plays because plays are still formatted the same way as in English whereas you have a name and then you have their dialogue and you have set description or whatever so they're pretty easy to follow whereas like French fiction impossible plus they always put spaces before punctuation and I hate that spaces before punctuation specifically question marks and exclamation points you put a space before that's awful it's wrong it's wrong i do i do just have to say that this style sheet is really funny the fact that it says do not use the oxford comma it's just so aggressive (laughs) it's because we all got in a fight for anyone not listening we all got in a fight about it yeah we didn't not in the editorial teams i haven't been in any of these meetings what happened it wasn't that heated but it also kind of was. Mm. But I think that's funny. I think that's hilarious that an argument can happen about grammar. Like, I'm always the one who does it, but at the same time, I do think it's pathetic at the same time. I've had... I think all need outlets, you know? I've had outlets at my place of work that has nothing to do with literature or editing about the Oxford comma (laughs) with, like, architects. It's just, there's no point. (laughs) Everyone gets heated. Everyone gets heated Mm -hmm. about it. Oh, okay. Here is something I'm very, very uh, passionate about uh, in the style sheet. The fact that if you have a sentence that makes sense in quotation marks, the full stop or question mark or whatever needs to be on the inside. But if it's Mm -hmm. just like a one word quoted thing, the, the punctuation will go on the outside. Yeah, otherwise it looks weird. But I think the situation is more like if the punctuation goes with the phrase that's inside it, then it goes inside. And if it goes with the surrounding thing, it goes outside. Mm -hmm, So they're thinking of it as being like part of the clause, Mm -hmm. you know. But I think we should also point out that this is what our job is. So if people are sending in work, it won't get rejected by the judging team if they've got a few stray yeah, if your grammar is not perfect, if you have, if you prefer the Oxford comma or don't, it's not an issue. Send your work in however it's sent in. We will judge it on grammar is a factor, as we discussed in our judging episode. But if you have a couple things that aren't, you know, exactly aligned with our style sheet, your work's not going to get rejected because you use single quotation marks and not double quotation marks or vice versa. Yeah, That's definitely not going to happen. We will just... If it makes it past the judging process and we do choose it, that is just something we will end up editing. And something we discussed before this was 
in that editorial process, we do not want to actually change your work. We just want to make your work as good as it can be and enhance what is there. So we won't be changing the heart of your piece in any way. It's mostly just these little things like quotation marks, like the punctuation. This is not going to take your piece apart. From an editorial perspective, do you have any tips for those submitting to Ripple this year on editing their own work before submission? I'd say reread, definitely, um, because I think a lot of times people can either fall in the category of being like, everything I write is amazing, or they go, everything I write is shit. And I feel like both have positive ways of like being. Yes. Um, but I'd also say that this is what I've picked up from a writer's workshop. Um, when you are stuck with a piece of writing and you get to that point where you're hitting the wall, open a new Word document and kind of start again or start from the point like a bit before and don't like maybe you can have your notes near you or something or in a different tab so you can refer back and pull things. But in essence, like start again because you, you get so like critical of yourself when you're in that wall mode and you're like, it has to be perfect. But whereas if you're just kind of playing around it, like brilliant things can come from that, I'd say. Yeah, that's yeah, a really I, good idea because it's, it's really hard to avoid like being too self-critical. Mm. Thing. But if you kind of look at it from an objective standpoint, you come up with something brand new. Yeah, I know a lot of people's tips are also like, even just changing the font to reread or reading out loud. Reading aloud, absolutely, especially if you're writing something with rhythm. So it not, it not necessarily poetry. I mean, I know the prose that I write is very, I try and get rhymes and rhythm and stuff through it anyway. But the font thing, I mean, sure, if that works for you, but personally, I think that I can't see the benefits of that. Maybe it would jog your brain in a different way, but I think that these other ways of like stepping away, taking a break, those are more productive, I'd say, than changing the font because I still think that you could get really like caught up in it. So the language is still the same, isn't it? Yeah, I just meant like as a shift in perspective so that your brain almost thinks it's a different piece. I've definitely found like looking at stuff on a different, like if I wrote something on my laptop, rereading it on my phone sometimes helped me pick out things that I'm really not happy with. I'd say when that happens to me, when I read it on different forms, it's because I've moved room. It's because I've moved headspace. Like maybe at my laptop, I'm really stressed writing, la la la. Maybe I'm more critical doing my re-edit or whatever. But when I move through and I'm having a glass of wine and I'm rereading it on my phone, I can be more like playful and like silly and not be so like, yeah, critical, I suppose. That was a really good answer. Thank you. It's because I love editing. It's my jam. It totally, it totally comes across. Thanks. I really, really, really want to be an editor. Like it hurts my heart that I'm not. Me too. What editing do you want to do? I really want to get into like editing the young adult slash like new adulty zone of like for people in their 20s like editing those that market of books I don't know if that's like yeah because that's like what I love to read and I think it'd be really fun to be involved or poetry because I love poetry as we have discussed many times on this I am podcast with poetry what kind of poetry do you like like most um my favorite poet is probably either Richard Sykin or Ann Carson 
Um, but I also read a lot of Frank O'Hara, uh, Allen Ginsberg. <gasps> I've read some Allen. I've read one poem. But Was it like, Howell? Yes, it's amazing. Yeah. That's the only one I've read as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I listened to it on YouTube being read by, I feel like there's a film. Um, Probably. My um, fav- not favourite, it's hard to pick a favourite thing, but I was going to say I absolutely love reading like well-written real life stories something that has happened to you or something that's happened to your friends so or just in a setting that you actually know so you can imagine it you can tell you can absolutely tell if so and so has worked in a bar and that's why their work is blah 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 Mm -hmm. you can tell that so and so's never never been near a plane before like they don't know this setting that they're writing why i can never get on board with like sci-fi or like high fantasy because I'm like I don't I don't relate to this like I don't and the the people like they might have amazing imaginations but I'd much rather hear like a different perspective on something real. I completely agree with you however I've recently read C.S. Lewis's the first one in his trilogy and it is insane I feel like I am there called the space trilogy um and the first one's called like Out of the Silent Planet or something. But it feels like he is taking somewhere or some experience that he mu- he must have had or just read loads. He's just read loads of this stuff, understands it. Like it feels like for some, like he's been to a foreign planet, which I just don't understand how he's managed it. That's really cool. I like, yeah. um, I watched this YouTube video earlier where this girl talks about whether sci-fi realism is a thing and then she talks through loads of different books and I realise that I love like loads of these books where but it's kind of I don't actually know what the genre is called but she describes it as sci-fi realism where it's like it's completely like our normal world but there's one thing that's different so it's almost like kind of like Black Mirror where it's like there's one bit of technology that's different there's like there's a drug that's different or there's um there's something yeah, there's just one element that... I think if magical realism can be a genre, then sci-fi realism can be as well. Because mm-hmm. there's also the other end of, like, the sci-fi spectrum is hard sci-fi, which is, like, books like The Martian, where there's a lot of... <laughs> sorry, just sorry, but I, it just makes me think, like, I don't know, like, I just think it's, like, oh, like... Difficult. Like, hard, no, like, hard porn and like soft porn and it's like hard sci-fi hard porn sci-fi when you're a robot (laughs) I saw this vine or like it was a tiktok where this woman was saying I don't know when I'm she was like I used to think I wouldn't know when I was going to become a conservative when I got older and I realized that it's when my daughter brings home a robot boyfriend <laughs> that's when I'm going to be a conservative yeah, and I was like literally that's my, me like liberal cutoff point and it's mm-hmm. the robot boyfriend that's literally my liberal cutoff point oh my god you were saying about hard sci-fi though oh yeah sorry oh yeah so like books like the martian are hard sci-fi where it's like that is the future, so, like, we're not going to Mars right now, and it's about the Ares 3 mission to Mars, so it's the third mission to Mars. Um, obviously, we have not gotten that far yet, So, but it is near future, and Andrew Weir, the guy who wrote it, goes really into, like, the actual science it would take to survive on Mars alone for a year. I so. thought, isn't sci-fi realism essentially just dystopia? kind of if it's got a morbid end 
it kind of is. Some yeah, dystopia like, is sci-fi realism. I don't know that all sci-fi realism has to be dystopia. Yeah, I think one of the because one of the examples that I've read, favorite book that I read this year that basically like predicted this pandemic, but people turn into like zombies. But like all of the things are the same. Like it came from China. Um, it spread all around the world. There was debates over masks and stuff. No one could find a vaccine. It was always kind of, like it was. Everyone was getting stuff from Amazon. It was like I don't think I, don't think I want to read that at this I point. I, I read it at the perfect point in the summer where my anxiety. In my book. Um, <laughs> Yeah. Our well, book segment that that's about to come up. I am also going to talk about a book about a pandemic. So we should move on. We're going to finish up with our regular book club segment. I've been low-key looking forward to this because I stalk both of your Goodreads accounts on a regular and know we all have super different tastes. So Raven, what have you been reading? All right, so I've just started reading Station Eleven by Emily St. John Mandel. It is about a pandemic, so it's a little bit of a heavy read during this time, and it's going to take me a little bit to get through this, I think, than it might have normally. It opens up in Toronto, where a famous actor dies on stage during a performance, uh, and a deadly virus touches down in North America. The bulk of the book takes place 20 years later and is about sort of civilization loss and what you would preserve and things like that. So it's like much more apocalyptic than anything that we're going through. But the themes of pandemic at the beginning have made it a little bit difficult to get into, but it is still a very interesting story and I'm very excited to read it. Uh, what about you, Mia? So I'm going to talk about two books. The first I just finished is Fleischman is in Trouble, which is a Manhattan doctor that's just got divorced and he's trying out dating apps for the first time and he's in his 40s and uh, he kind of very much plays up the as he's like the victim of his relationship and that his wife was very ambitious and cold and and then suddenly she goes missing which kind of puts his sort of perspective of his relationship and everyone's perspective of their relationship um like under the spotlight so you kind of see it's, it's about unreliable narrators, basically. I can't, I'm trying to really not try and give anything away because there's really good twists in it. But it's kind of the essential message is that everyone sees a relationship and the demise of a relationship differently. It's a really interesting book. I only gave it three stars, but I do think it's worth a read. But it's mainly because it took me so long to get into it. But when I was into it, I loved it. And then I also tried my first ever audiobook this week, which is exciting. Um, I got it free on NetGalley, and it's um, The Switch by Beth O'Leary. And I'd, um, I'm really not that into, like, romance books, especially, like, I like a bit of, like, Jane Austen, ye olde romance, but I'm not that big a fan of, like, modern romance. But it was really cute and, like, wholesome, and it's about a granddaughter and a grandmother that kind of like swap lives because they're both going through really hard times so like the uh the granddaughter she's like 30 and she moves up to like the Yorkshire countryside and does loads of like cute small village activities and sets up like a May Day fair and stuff and then the grandmother moves to um London and lives in her flat share and like sorts out all of her like millennial friends issues and also goes on dating apps. So a lot about dating apps in my reading repertoire this week. But yeah, so I've got a question about that. So you know when because I've never I've never done an audiobook. You know when they go to different perspectives, is there a different voice or do they just sort of change their tone? 
So what was what I think worked really well with this book in particular is, I mean, I'm just I haven't seen the physical book itself. So I'm only imagining this is they had two actresses, an older actress and a younger actress. The younger actress is um, Daisy something, the one with the normal people. <gasps> that seems so exciting. She's going to she's going to come into mine in a second. Carry on. Yeah. So um, they um, and then it was like chapter to chapter. Mm-hmm. So their names are Eileen and Lena, and it would, and it and the chapter would all be spoken in their voice. But even if even if the other character was talking in it, it would still be in that one person's all of their portions, and then the other one. So, but I've I've haven't listened to another audiobook since I used to listen to like audio CDs in the car when I was a child. So I can't really remember how it's done with other ones. But I'm definitely I'm definitely sold on audiobooks now. I wasn't interested before, but you've you've sold it to me there yeah works cool and um, what about you Fiona what have you been reading um so this is kind of like I'm joining a bandwagon and I hate that I'm doing it but here we go uh where the crawdads sing oh my god okay it's by Delia Owens probably should do that first um so I was like saying horrible things about this book at first because like four people recommended it to me and were all each individually checking up on me to see how I was feeling about the book because they loved it so much, which I now understand. Um, but it made me kind of distance from it because, you know, when everything's so hyped, it's like, oh, God. Um, so for the first 80 pages, it took me like uh, three days to read that. And then I read like 300 in one day because like a, a dysfunctional family, like they live in the marsh. They are kind of the outsiders of the town because they just live in this shack. And then like the family members grow up and drop off and drop off. And then it's just like an exploration of how she lives there on her own. And there's, oh my God, the sex in it is hot. The um, the emotion in it's hot. It's written by a zoologist. So she explains nature so incredibly and so accurately that it just is, you're there and it's amazing. And then it's also a courtroom drama. It's got everything. I I literally cannot, recommend this book higher that's great I um I've heard about this on like I've heard about this book on every platform mm-hmm. so people have recommended it to me uh, which ruins it as well because then you spend the first 80 pages going what's so great about this but yeah. I'm telling you oh. Oh. I actually hadn't heard of this book before so I guess I'll put it on my to read then if it comes so highly uh, recommended um Daisy Edgar Jonesy Logi, I don't know what her name is. Um, she is going to be the actress in the film version of this, and it's going to be such a good film. But I do also resent telling people that because then you automatically go in picturing her. Isn't it set in America? Sure. Yeah, I think it is. <laughs> you said March and Crawdad. I'm assuming it's set in Louisiana. Yeah, I was going to say because um, I heard it was set in South Carolina. But what yeah, I am, South Carolina, Louisiana, sort of zone. I can feel myself already getting annoyed by this this Daisy actress because first she's playing an Irish character. The struggle. English, <laughs> the posh English roles. I it's like you. when you made Emma Watson the character in Perks of Being a Wallflower and gave her, and she had an awful American accent. Like I just don't think that she will be awful at it, and I think that one now reading the book, I can see it. I can see why they've chosen her. I do think, yeah, sure, give some of these little uh, actresses a go. But if, for example, you're not in the world, 
and you see Daisy is uh, you're going to watch it because you like normal people yeah true but also like I have less of a problem about like people putting on an American accent a like Irish accent blah 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 but then I get a bit more like eh, when it goes to like someone like you know um what's her name Jennifer Lawrence she put on like a Russian accent uh, I think in some film and I'm like why why is that happening and when it's just like give people the roles that I think that's more politics but also with the with the normal people thing it's because I watched uh I watched an Irish film earlier this year called I can't remember but there was an amazing Irish actress as the lead role and I was like she would have been an incredible Marianne and they even have the same look like the same like very fair dark hair look Daisy Daisy wasn't Marianne to me in my head she did it well Mm -hmm. what when you were reading it yeah she wasn't really Marianne I expected um I don't know it's such a long time since I read that I just expected less obvious beauty yeah definitely but that's always the thing with adaptations god who is it she's got like a Coleman on that Je- not is it Gemma? Olivia Coleman no not Olivia I think it might be Gemma Coleman there's too many Colemans. she is one of the most beautiful women in the world I'm not taking any argument on that either she is and she's playing someone who is known to have not been an attractive woman. Do you know what I mean? Like, she's not conventionally an attractive woman, whereas she's she's playing... Anyway, I'm wording this I wrong. always found it interesting when it's, like, especially historical figures where we, like, know what they looked like, more or less. Like, and then it's like, and I'm going to cast the most beautiful woman you've ever seen. And it's like, why? It does, it does happen with men as well. I, I bring it you... It does happen with men as well. Jonathan Rhys Myers as Henry VIII. Yeah, there's like choices being made. Oh, look him up. He is gorgeous. Oh well, will I have a good time with that? Okay. <laughs> I think my new thing for Hollywood: cast more ugly people. <laughs> no, one hundred percent. Literally, cast more ugly people for characters that are meant to be unattractive, or even just like cast people who look normal. Yeah, because it's just about representation across the board so obviously it's great that we're having the conversation about like um you know bigger models great Mm -hmm. uh trans models actors oh my god trans films that that film oh my god i'm so angry you know that film with eddie redmayne oh my god yeah i don't want to think about that film he does such a good job and i loved that film but why 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 like, have a trans woman in that film. Like, literally, why did that film happen the way that it did? Nobody knows. I have Nobody no knows. I have no idea. But, like, I, what I want is representation for sixes. You know what I mean? Yeah, 100%. <laughs> I want representation for people who aren't tens. <laughs> That's what my representation media. Where's yeah. my, where are my sixes at? Yeah, like, there's always a two playing, mm-hmm. you know, a two because they're written as a two and they're not a main character, but there's never a six. Give me some normal-looking people. Even the twos, like, I think, like, Neville Longbottom, for example, is, like, a very handsome young man now. And he had his glow-up. He's had such a glow-up, I can't believe it. But they also ugly-fied him in the movies. Like, they made him wear a flipper that was 
the teeth were crooked, even though his teeth weren't crooked. Just get someone with crooked teeth. I don't understand. No, it's good when he's a kid and then he got braces. But the thing they did do is even when he's like hitting puberty and stuff, they put like wedges behind his ears to make them stick out. But they don't in real life. Like they put wedges and they always did that. And that's weird. That's That's weird to me. That's really weird. That also sounds uncomfortable. I'm sure it wasn't, but... Thanks to Fiona for joining us today and giving the lovely listeners some more insight into Ripple and how our editing process works. If you would like your work to be considered for the 2021 Ripple Anthology, please send your submissions to ripplesubmissions at gmail.com with submission in all caps in the subject line. Please include your full name and K number in the subject line, as well as a couple sentences about you in the main body. Make sure not to put your name or K number in the actual submitted document so that we can judge anonymously. Our judging team, which I've recently become a part of, are a very unbiased bunch, but we want to ensure that everything is fair. For a full list of guidelines, please visit kingstonripple.wordpress.com slash submit or check out episode zero of our podcast where May and I talk through all the specific criteria for submitting. And remember, May is currently answering questions on the Ripple Instagram account about all things related to anthology. So right after listening to this, you can head on over and ask her any of your pressing questions. I'll make sure to answer them all. (laughs) So thanks again to Fiona and thank you all for listening. We look forward to seeing your work in Ripple 2021. Goodbye. Bye.